You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. I'm late. I'm late. Very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com it's hard to believe that it was eight years ago this week when I did perhaps one of the most important interviews of my career. That was when I sat down with Governor Sarah Palin, who was here in New York City for the U.N. General Assembly because she was running for vice president of the United States. As we remember, she was John McCain's running mate. And she had done a few sit-down interviews, actually two, but had really limited them to major network interviews. So this was a very big deal for me because it was a big opportunity to sort of peel the layers of the onion and discover what made Sarah Palin tick. And I couldn't have done it without the help of my trusty colleague, Brian Goldsmith. Brian is one of the smartest guys I know. He's sort of my consigliere. Did I say that right, Brian? Consigliere. See, I have to ask Brian everything. Where would I be without him? I've just seen the the godfather too many times. He's more of, you're more of a godson than a godfather because you're only 34 years old, let's be honest. Brian... Did you realize that it was eight years ago this week when we actually, well, I actually, you were in the room where it happened, as they (laughs) said in Hamilton, and sat down and interviewed Governor Sarah Palin? I didn't realize it was eight years ago this week until you mentioned it a few minutes ago. Of course, that interview uh, gets mentioned all the time. I think it's probably one of the two most significant political interviews ever done on television, the other being... Wait, what's the other, Brian? Roger Mudd's... <laughs> I know. ...infamous interview of Ted Kennedy in which he couldn't answer the question, very complicated question, why are you running for president? Uh, the that was something, wasn't it? It was. The questions were a little more nuanced and complicated for Governor Palin, but what struck me in the aftermath of that interview, considering all the criticism that she got, is that not a single big-name Republican, not a single McCain aide or advisor said to you any of these questions were unfair or unwarranted. 
it was really all about her answers. She kind of buried herself as a national political candidate in a single interview, which was a, a pretty remarkable thing to watch. Let's take our listeners behind the scenes a little bit, because we spent many days in what we call in my apartment, my daughters and I, our red room. Now, listeners, don't think it's like the red room of pain and Fifty Shades of Grey. It's anything but. It happens to be a den slash library that I painted this kind of not very nice shade of kind of rose when I bought this apartment after my husband passed away in 1998. I wanted this to be a happy place to raise my girls, who were only six and two at the time. And so, Brian, we spent a lot of time in that room really going through the kinds of questions we thought would be important to ask Governor Palin. And I think you and I, what do you remember from those days other than you couldn't wait to get out of my apartment? (laughs) (laughs) Wanting to open the window to that library. Freshen the place up hey, a little bit. It was only it's only on the second floor, so good <laughs> luck with that. I, I remember uh, the two of us thinking, uh, this is somebody who only had been a governor for about eighteen months at the time. Before that, was a small town mayor, and here she was in a position to be one heartbeat away from the most powerful office on earth. And so we didn't want to hold her to a an artificially high standard or to a different standard, but we did want to hold her to the same standard as other people who had sought that office before. We wanted to give our viewers who didn't know much about Sarah Palin uh, a sense of, of who she was, what she believed, and how she would approach this extraordinarily important job. And we we divvied up the interview between foreign policy questions, economic policy questions, and questions about social issues. So the first one was really focused on foreign policy and economic issues. And then later I did a second interview in Ohio when she was there for a campaign appearance. And that's when I asked that question that seems to be so remembered in this interview, despite the fact that we talked about Iran and nuclear weapons, we talked about taxes, we talked about all kinds of issues. But we were walking and getting what's called B-roll to cover the interview, and that's when I asked her when it came to her worldviews, what newspapers and magazines had she read on a regular basis that helped sort of shape her her perspective. And uh, that's when she said... I've read most of them, again, with a great appreciation for the press, for the media. Like, what coming, specifically? I'm curious that you... Um, all of them, any of them that um, have, have been in front of me over all these years. Um, I, have a va- I have a vast variety of sources where we get our news to. Alaska isn't a foreign country where it's kind of suggested it seems like wow, how could you keep in touch with what the rest of Washington, D.C. may be thinking and doing when you live up there in Alaska? Believe me, Alaska is like a micro. And it's funny, Katie, I remember exactly how you thought of that question. We were on her campaign plane um, flying with her to that event in Ohio, and we could see into the first-class cabin where Palin and her aides were sitting, and we could see her reading the New York Times. And I remember you're saying, oh, that's interesting. You sort of wouldn't expect her to read the New York Times necessarily because she was and is a very conservative politician. I wonder what else she reads. Would that be an interesting question? 
And I don't you know. You remember that, we, that? I don't even remember that qu- that conversation, Brian. I remember that. And I remember we didn't even write it down as part of the written questions because we just thought it wouldn't yield a particularly interesting answer. Um, and so I, you just threw it in uh, as part of what we call the walk and talk, not thinking that we would. I mean, I imagine you, you didn't think we would even use the audio of it. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't sure. And I, it was interesting because I think her her aides realized that it was not going well. And you actually saw someone emailing something on their BlackBerry. What was that, Brian? I, I did. During the very first interview you conducted with her in New York during UN Week, we were in a hotel room. And it was very kind of close quarters along the side of that room while you were conducting the interview. And I peered over in a nosy way, and I saw what a very senior McCain aide was typing on his BlackBerry, uh, I think to Steve Schmidt, if I remember correctly, who was running the campaign. And he said, disaster, disaster, expletive. Mayday, mayday. (laughs) Yeah. Mayday, mayday. So they knew that it was bad. I think we knew that it was bad. I don't think any of us knew how iconic and damaging the interview would be and how it would resonate even all these years later. I think people stop you to mention that interview more than any other uh any other work you've done if I if I'm well, that, correct. Well, that that and my that and my colonoscopy. This was just a different kind of colonoscopy, Brian. By the way, <laughs> by the way, you know, I wasn't sure how this interview would be interpreted or received by the general public. I thought those who liked Governor Palin would like her more because of her authentic uh, kind of homespun style. And I thought those who disliked her would dislike her even more. What I didn't realize was this wide swath of undecided voters, what kind of impact it would have on them in terms of their comfort level supporting someone who seemed to be out of her depth when it came to major policy issues. Well, one thing that interview showed loud and clear, Brian, is that vice presidential candidates can make or break a campaign. Well, yeah, and usually, that's why- usually the rule is nobody votes for vice president, but sometimes they do, or sometimes they vote against somebody's choice for vice president, and there is evidence that Palin hurt McCain. But I think you were well, just about to do a wonderful transition to our that's, interview, which that's I That's okay, Brian. Bill Weld is running for vice president. He is a old political hand or a political hand of longstanding. <laughs> um, governor Weld was a two-time governor of the state of Massachusetts. And in 96, he lost a Senate race to John Kerry. Then he was nominated by Bill Clinton to be ambassador to Mexico. In late May, or I guess in mid-May, May 17th to be exact, Gary Johnson named Bill Weld as his running mate for the Libertarian ticket for President of the United States. And Bill Weld is here to talk about that. Hi, Governor. How are you? Katie, it's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, this is a very exciting time for you, uh, but the clock is ticking. Uh, what the hell are you doing this for, Governor Weld? You know, I have a bad character, I guess, because I really enjoy this stuff. And this year of all years, to have a chance to participate in that with a guy I've known for a long time, Governor Gary Johnson. He and I overlapped as governors and uh, think the world of. And we have very similar 
backgrounds, you know, fiscally conservative, socially uh, inclusive. And, uh, you know, the two establishment party candidates are leaving a little bit of room in the middle for an alternative. Matter of fact, that's an understatement, kind of a six-lane highway. (laughs) Well, we're going to get into sort of a lot of the issues and your perspective on this campaign in a moment, but I want listeners to have a better idea of who you are and why you're here, as Admiral Stockdale famously said during one of those debates. Um, You may not be originally from Boston, but I think you're kind of the ultimate Boston Brahmin. Wouldn't you say so? I don't know about that. I was raised in Long Island, New York, and uh, went to school in Massachusetts, never really left. Uh, But uh, my family was from Massachusetts on on both sides uh, up until the 19th century. Yeah, I think that's kind of an understatement. Your ancestor, I've read, Edmund Weld, uh, was among the earliest students ever at Harvard College, class of 1650, where uh, two buildings and two professorships are named for your family. Wasn't Edmund Weld the one who was expelled for stealing horses? There was there was a sheep in there. I, I, I read something about that. I didn't know what farm animals he got into trouble for, though. Well, I was attacked uh, by the local uh, uh, Irish Senate president uh, who gave St. Patrick's Day uh, breakfast for my ancestors having come over on the Mayflower. And I said, no, that's not true at all. Uh, they sent the servants over to get the cottage ready for them. And after that, <laughs> after that, I didn't hear anything more much about that issue. They just thought that was so funny. Well, and most politicians uh, try to claim to have been born in a, in a log cabin they built themselves. So right. I think your, your honesty was pretty refreshing there. It wasn't even honest, but I got away with it. <laughs> Were you Kennedy-esque in terms of politics being ingrained in you from a very early age? How did you get into this old crazy business? Well, you know, I didn't think I was going to be uh, in politics growing up. I thought I was going to be a Latin teacher. But it is true that my father uh, was active in Republican politics in eastern Long Island. And, uh, you know, I, he took me uh, to meet people and go to rallies uh, age, you know, 14, 15. So to that extent, uh, I knew that politics was considered to be a noble calling in our family, put it that way, from both my parents. And you got your start in politics uh, as a lawyer, not as an elected official. You were appointed, as I recall, by President Reagan to be U.S. attorney for Massachusetts. What was that experience like? Well, that was terrific. Possibly the best job I ever had. Uh, That's the federal prosecutor for Massachusetts. And I went on from there to be head of the criminal division of uh, the Justice Department in Washington. So I had a lot of uh, law enforcement experience under uh, Reagan. My first job Uh, in, quote, politics, close quote, was actually working as a staffer for Senator Javits of New York writing foreign policy speeches. That's before I even went to law school. And my second job was sharing an office with uh, a young Yale law grad named Hillary Rodham uh, on the Nixon impeachment, uh, the House uh, Judiciary staff. And we literally wrote the book or the pamphlet on what constitutes grounds for impeachment of a president. And whatever happened to her? (laughs) She's gone on to great things. But I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, So 25 years after that, we did that in in, uh, 73, 74. So I think January of 99, I get a call from John Podesta, uh, who's in the White House as chief of staff at that point. He says, looks like they're going to proceed against my guy. And we've looked around, uh, and it seems that there are only two people in the country who really know a lot, a lot about what the law of impeachment is. And the other one is very much disqualified uh, by interest. So you're going to have to testify as an expert witness on the law, which I did. 
And what did you think of uh, Hillary Rodham back in the day? What were your impressions of her as a a young lawyer? Well, she's obviously smart and uh, disciplined. And I've, over the years, always described her as a great kid. And the truth is, we were both kids then. We were both in our 20s. What what sort of stood out to you? I mean, other than the fact that she was smart, can you give us more insights into sort of how she operated, uh, her character, her sense of humor, her whatever? Well, I would say both good, both character and sense of humor uh, good. And uh, she presented as uh, straight, uh, not as a Nixon hater. There were some people on that staff who just couldn't wait to bring down Dick Nixon and uh, perhaps shouldn't have been on that staff. Uh, but uh, no, I, I would say she was pretty straightforward. You then moved home uh, to Boston following your stint in the Reagan Justice Department and ran for governor as a Republican in a state where I think fewer than 20 percent of the registered voters at the time were Republican. That's correct. What was that like? Well, I was I was beaten very badly at the state uh, Republican convention uh, in the spring of 1990 and uh, just got lucky uh, in September. The, the, the race kind of broke my way, so I won the primary by a little bit. Uh, and then the Democratic Party uh, split right down the middle, and uh, uh, the fellow who had uh, beaten me for attorney general 12 years earlier, very badly beaten me, uh, did not get the nomination. And uh, John Silber, who was the president of Boston University, did. He was ahead of me mo- most of the way, but then he had a couple of uh, uh, blow-ups on TV with uh, Natalie Jacobson and then uh, Leslie Stahl in the closing 10 days of the campaign. And I think we won by one point, something like that. But it was classic. I remember uh, interviewing him uh, when I was at NBC and he was running. Uh, and and I remember how ornery he was and how, sh- how what a short fuse he had. And it didn't really work well for him when it came to talking to reporters or doing interviews. You know, in a way, he was very good, uh, very good copy. There's, uh, uh, and, and we, you know, we, we were two people who were not afraid of the microphone. Can you describe a little bit the experience of being governor of Massachusetts, being a Republican who was successful in an overwhelmingly Democratic place? Well, I mean, it was a, a tremendously enjoyable experience. I had very good staff uh, led by uh, Charlie Baker, who's now the governor of Massachusetts. He was my secretary in both health and then later finance. Uh, and I brought a bunch of people over from the U.S. Attorney's Office who were uh, very experienced investigators, prosecutors, uh, Nobody came near us with any improper suggestions because they knew we were all federal prosecutors. (laughs) So that was a a plus. We were able to cut taxes 21 times and never have a tax increase. And that, uh, you ask about the first term and the experience, uh, that's the dominant feature of the first term is taxes went down, spending went down. We actually cut spending in real dollars. And when the small and medium business community saw that, they had the confidence to add jobs. So we went from being the state with the highest unemployment rate among the then 11 industrial states in the country at the beginning of my first term to having the lowest unemployment rate among those 11 states uh, at the end of my first term. That's where the big reelect came from. It was the economy. It wasn't because we were such great guys. Let's talk about uh, you say that you agree with the Governor Johnson, in terms of you'd like to limit foreign intervention for regime change. But are you really comfortable as a libertarian or you are more libertarian-ish? Oh, no, I'm, I'm running as myself. I'm not running with a 
copy of the Libertarian platform in my pocket any more than I ran with a copy of the Republican platform in my pocket when I was running as a Republican. I mean, I never bought into the Republican social policies. They were, you know, they were anti-abortion. I was pro-choice. They were so-so at best about gays and lesbians. I was out there for the entire decade of the 90s on gay and lesbian issues, promoting civil rights, promoting marriage equality. Um, you know, I, I, I also think uh, that uh, we have to be darn sure that we maintain and demonstrate military supremacy for the United States in both naval and air power, because I know that people all over the world look at that like hawks. I know you said that you don't follow the libertarian platform to the letter. On the other hand, your running mate, Gary Johnson, has taken a number of positions personally where there seems to be some difference between the two of you. Can I kind of go through, can we go through a few of Johnson's positions and get your views? Um, In 2012, he advocated cutting the federal government nearly in half, a 43% cut. Do you think that that's realistic? I think we're aiming at 20% now. And I often have said before I teamed up with Gary Johnson. I've never seen a layer of government that didn't have 10 or 20% excess spending in it. And I'm not talking about the words people always use, waste, fraud, and abuse. I'm talking about programs that shouldn't be there in the first place, ill-conceived programs. Like what? A bureaucracy that nobody can tell you quite what they do. I mean, I think there's probably even more of that at the federal level than there is uh, at the state level. But what- Like who? (laughs) <laughs> Whose head? Uh, no, my my uh, uh, the the guy I follow here is a, actually a Democrat named uh, David Osborne, who wrote a book called Laboratories of Democracy about how the states uh, can experiment with things. And his recommendation, which I've always followed, and I think probably Charlie Baker after me has followed, is to zero base the budget. You you don't assume that you have last year's appropriation plus five percent, which is what they assume in Washington. You assume. Every account is zero starting off. And then you look at the results of last year. And if the result of this preventive health program was marvelous outcomes and saved lots of money and uh, improved people's lives, you might multiply that appropriation by 12. You know, none of this 10% across the board stuff. Then you get to... uh, uh, a, a bureaucracy. And it could be the Department of Education. It could be the Department of Commerce. It could be Homeland Security. Uh, you know, um, we we have our thoughts, but you, you want to examine them. And, and that that might be a zero. So that's, that's how you really get budget savings. And I did, uh, as governor in Massachusetts, cut spending in real dollars from year to year uh, at, the, at the beginning when I took office. And, and each of Gary Johnson and Bill Weld were rated the most fiscally conservative governor in the United States back in the 90s. And, and that's something that's got to be done now in Washington. And both the establishment party candidates have said, oh, no, we're gonna, not going to touch entitlements. We're going to bigger this, bigger that. Um, we're not so sure about that. Let me go down this laundry list if I could, Governor. Maybe you can just give me a yay or nay, a thumbs up or thumbs down on some of Gary Johnson's positions. Marijuana legalization, yay or nay? Yeah, I'm okay with that. Treat it like alcohol. I, I think alcohol is probably more more um, harmful than marijuana. Deep six common core. Oh, very much so. And the reason I say that is uh, we put in uh, high stakes tests in fourth, eighth, and 10th grade in Massachusetts. And after they kicked in. Massachusetts was number one in the country in reading and math every single year. 
And if we went to Common Core in mass, it would be a real downturn. You know, if I had been the governor of Mississippi or Louisiana, uh, I might I might feel differently. But I don't want to be part of a race to the bottom when I'm on top. No government involvement in fighting climate change. Something tells me, Governor, you're not that jiggy with that. Yeah, right. That would be that would be correct. Now I've been uh, quite active in the environmental. Area And I would say to Ed Crane, who was the head of the Cato Institute, even in the old days when I went out to his annual meetings, the one part where I, you know, get off the bus uh, is uh, environmental enforcement just because the, the economies of scale are so great you cannot rely on the market of individuals and businesses to protect us all from environmental degradation. And uh, Gary agrees with that. He says, look, uh, the purpose of government, uh, a major purpose of government is to restrain people from injuring each other. And if if it's, you know, one polluter polluting a river, okay, that's very obvious. But if it's millions of polluters polluting the atmosphere, it's the same principle. No to mandatory vaccines. Well, um, you know, I, I don't have flu shots myself. I, I represented the but federal— We're talking about vaccines for children, Governor. Oh, you mean like polio and that? Sure, absolutely. That's 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 fine. Uh, discretionary— so, There shouldn't be mandatory vaccines for children, for babies, for infants. No, if you mean polio, tetanus, that sort of thing, no, that's perfectly fine. MMR, you know, all sorts of vaccines. That's very controversial, yeah, no, I would not agree there should be no mandatory vaccines for children. I, I don't agree with that. So you believe there should be mandatory vaccines? Right. I'm, I just want to make sure I'm getting yes, this straight. Yes, yes. Uh, he, he claims the no-fly list is error-prone and it shouldn't be used to deny gun purchases. Are you cool with that? You know, I think Gary and I have had some influence on each other over the course of this year. And uh, I think that I've had some influence on his thinking in the foreign policy area. He's had some influence on my thinking in... Uh, uh, criminal justice reform, you know, treating possessory uh, narcotics offenses, for example, as a public health emergency as opposed to uh, a, a fit candidate for uh, criminal treatment and lengthy uh, sentences. Uh, so, so if we, you're on the no-fly list, do you think you should be able to purchase a gun? Well, I, I think before you can purchase a gun, there have to be some further questions like, why are you on the no-fly list? And, and I think Senator Collins of Maine has uh, proposed a kind of compromised legislation that seemed to me when I read it to address the situation, you know, preserve people's rights, but uh, have uh, short waiting periods when they get to uh, clear their name and say, I shouldn't be on this list. All right. We're going to go to a break in a moment. But the final thing on my little laundry list, raise Social Security retirement to Uh, 75. Uh, 72 is what uh, I have heard from Gary, and I agree with that. And I agree with him very much that if we do nothing about Social Security, and I do favor raising the retirement age, I do favor imposing a means test, if we do nothing, it's not going to be there for the next generation. And and that's what a lot of all this uh, brouhaha about the millennials is about. I think they understand that if we put our heads in the sand and do nothing about the uh, entitlement programs, they won't be there for the generation that's now 18 to 34 years old. But do you think it's acceptable for somebody who works with his hands or is a, a laborer, a coal miner, somebody who works in a factory, for that person to have to work to age 72 before collecting any benefits? 
Well, maybe you can jigger with uh, the program to have exceptions, but uh, generally people haven't wanted exceptions with uh, Social Security. That's why people have opposed the means test. I think that's insane. Why shouldn't there be a means test? I mean, let's be honest. You don't need Social Security, Governor. Right. I don't need Social Security. I'd be happy to say no. It was interesting. I used to talk to my mom and dad about it, you know, and they were savers and were very frugal. And I'd say, Mom and Dad, do you really need Social Security? They're like, yes, we do. But don't you? I mean, it's just to me, it just seems ridiculous. Yeah. No, I mean, to say there should be no means test is a non-starter in in my book. And and yet, you know, people say, no, we're not going to touch Social Security in any respect because they think it's a third rail because they don't want to actually talk through the issues. And I think Gary and I uh, are not afraid to talk through these issues. Well, there's another there's another argument about not imposing a means test on Social Security, which a lot of Democrats make. You don't want it to become a welfare program that only benefits people who are less well off, because then the political constituency for Social Security declines. No, over I understand. Time. I understand. And, and people uh, on the you know left left side of things fiscally want everything to be an entitlement. And the extreme example is Senator Sanders. And I think Senator Clinton has picked up a lot of uh, the Sanders uh, program uh, in her primary uh, tussle with him. Well, speaking of uh, Hillary Clinton, when we come back, we're going to talk about who you're siphoning votes from, Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, and what you think about that. We'll be back with more from Bill Weld right after this. A lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. I'm late. I'm late for the important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com we're back with Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld, who is currently running for vice president of the United States, part of the libertarian ticket with Gary Johnson. You know, I asked for questions, Governor Weld, from people who follow me on Twitter, and many asked uh, if you were hurting Hillary Clinton and we're actually um, enabling a Trump presidency, how you would feel about that? First of all, we're not out to hurt uh, anybody, Uh, unlike the two establishment party candidates who seemingly, like the two parties they represent, want to kill each other. 
As near and I can tell, as I can tell, to this point, uh, we draw votes uh, pretty equally from the two establishment parties. Something of a surprise to me. I would have thought they would almost all come from Mr. Trump because my appeal would be to moderate Republicans. And there's a bunch of moderate Republicans who are not too comfortable uh, with Mr. Trump and might even stay home. Uh, and given, you know, our ticket, uh, two successful but genial Republican governors, two terms each, they might very well come our way. And I think we're getting our share of that. And I think as the uh, weeks wear on and people focus more intently on the uh, on the race and the issues, it'll be easier for me to make the case that, um, you know, what Mr. Trump says about uh, having a closed economy, uh, no foreign trade, uh, that sort of thing, it just is incoherent. So I think as we go on, more votes are going to come from Trump. And there seemed to be a little bit of a divide on 60 Minutes between you and your running mate on this particular issue, Trump and, and Clinton. That is, Steve Croft said, you seem less comfortable with the idea of Donald Trump as president than Hillary Clinton. And you said something like, well, I think you're a pretty astute observer. Did well in school. You did well in school. <laughs> and and I think Gary Johnson basically said, you know, they're equally rotten. So if it if the evidence mounts that your candidacy is enabling a Trump presidency, would you consider, as Carl Bernstein speculated in the last few days, dropping out? Well, you know, I, I can tell there's some nervousness over at Clinton headquarters because I've received uh, several dozen emails unsolicited from people I don't know in the last <laughs> two days saying, you're a pariah. You're awful. You're going to go down in history. You're worse than Hitler. You're going to enable a Trump presidency. Every vote you take away, millennial, from Hillary Clinton is a stain upon your honor and that of your ancestors and your children. I mean, very strong stuff, obviously orchestrated. They all came out of a clear blue sky. So I know there's some nervousness over there, but, you know, uh, I would say go get your votes. Go hold on to your votes. <laughs> you know, Gary and I did not get into this because we wanted to please uh, anybody in particular. Uh, you know, we certainly didn't get into it to please people in other countries by our support of free trade. We think free trade benefits the U.S. economy, and I'm pretty sure we're right about that. But people say, oh, you know, you're against American workers because you're for free trade. I mean, that is just totally uh, incoherent. Well, no matter what your motivation, though, Governor, I mean, are you prepared to be seen as a spoiler, sort of the Ralph Nader of this race, if in fact you do siphon votes from Hillary Clinton and help uh, usher in a Donald Trump presidency? Are, so, you, are you ready for that? Because yeah. if we do a reality check, let's be honest, you're probably not going to win. Well, uh, we're going to try. We're going to make our case. And uh, when you get done hearing uh, what I have to say about Mr. Trump and rounding up 11 million people and deporting them and building a wall with Mexico and having a closed uh, a closed economy and no free trade whatsoever and uh, bring back the Smoot-Hawley tariffs that brought on the Great Depression and arm the Japanese and the South Koreans with nuclear weapons. I mean, the list is almost inexhaustible. That, yeah, but Governor Well, that's, that, that's well and good, but people have been criticizing Donald Trump for those very issues for months now, and it doesn't seem to have a major effect on his candidacy. So are you being naive by suggesting as people become more aware of some of his positions that his his support is going to wane because he seems to be increasing his support, you know, and and it's it's getting close to D-Day. 
Well, I think it can only be good for the country, uh, frankly, for people to become aware of what alternatives there are in this election year. And neither of the other parties represents the combination of fiscal uh, responsibility and social inclusiveness that we represent. So that's really my answer to that whole line of attack. Well, I'll give you a theory that was posited by somebody who knows you, who, who said the following, and you can tell me whether you think this is true or not. This person said, you were going to be another Republican who endorsed Hillary because you have a, a long and warm relationship with her. And then Johnson called you out of the clear blue sky, said, you know, you could be his running mate. It gave you an opportunity to put yourself and your issues kind of back on on center stage. And you thought, as you said, that you would take more votes from Trump than from Clinton. So kind of a win-win all around. Is is any of that accurate? I can't remember having a specific plan at any point to endorse Mrs. Clinton. Uh, the part about Trump is true. <laughs> <laughs> but a specific plan, did you have any intention of endorsing Hillary Clinton? I don't recall that coming up before Gary called me, no. I mean, it's it's no secret that I think she's qualified to be president, and I do not think Donald Trump is qualified to be president. So if push comes to shove, will you drop out as if if, if in fact, no, you, no, it's that, shown? No, that, no, that, that doesn't Absolutely follow not. at all. I've, I've never called on anybody else to drop out of a political race or not run in the first place and um, equally uh, not uh, not persuaded to listen to that kind of uh, counsel, even from, you know, well-meaning folks. And in addition to the orchestrated uh, emails, I've, got, I've heard from some New York friends of mine that they're worried about Mrs. Clinton. And that's, that's a lot has been written about that in recent days. It's called bedwetting. Uh, but, you know, that's, <laughs> Is that that's what my it's called? fault. Yeah. yeah. Nervousness about the Clinton prospects. Uh, and uh, I don't know. I guess I'm old school Massachusetts politics. Never, never let him see a sweat. Or, or, or P, I guess. Mitt Romney and other leading anti-Trump Republicans have said, hey, if Bill Weld were on the top of the ticket, we'd support them. But Gary Johnson, mm, not so much. And I have to ask you about some of his gaffes. He didn't know what Aleppo was. As you saw, and you talked about that on 60 Minutes, he was asked by Mike Barnacle on, on Morning Joe. What would you do if you were elected about Aleppo? About? Aleppo. And what is Aleppo? You're kidding. No. Aleppo is in Syria. It's the, uh, it's the epicenter of the refugee crisis. Okay, got it. Got it. And apparently, according to The New Yorker, he had never heard of Harriet Tubman. Is that, could that be? Maybe she's better known in the East than the West. I don't know. I will tell you, I hear a lot in Massachusetts and New York from old friends of mine, you should be on top of the ticket. And when I get west of the Mississippi with Gary, guess who gets mobbed at the airports? It's not me. And we don't hear anything about flipping the ticket. But until January, your running mate, Mr. Johnson, was CEO of a marijuana company, you know, he he hadn't heard of, of Aleppo, as Katie mentioned. Do you think he's ready and qualified on day one to be president of the oh, United yeah. States? Oh, no, yeah. Gary is, Gary is very sharp, and uh, he showed a lot of sand and grit uh, in New Mexico and kind of shocked the establishment there by winning. He was at 1% when he started. And he had a big impact fiscally. He, he vetoed 750 spending bills, and he was overridden twice. And the legislature was pretty close to two to one Democratic. So he knows how to talk to the people and make things stick. Uh, he, he does not have uh, 
you know, an Oscar Wilde facility with language. Uh, but, you know, I thought I was a pretty good chess player. And uh, Gary and I have now played twice, and he beat me both times. And I had master points. And he taught himself. So, and, and then you look at some of his other uh, characteristics, like uh, driving himself as an athlete. He's a professional quality uh, Ironman triathlete and has climbed the tallest mountain in all seven continents. So he's a driven individual and he's got plenty. I saw him doing a backflip on yeah. 60 Minutes off a, uh, off in his stone, spandex. Off that was quite a treat. diving board with no, no spring in it. But uh, he's a driven person, and obviously he's run for president of the United States twice now. He has plenty of ambition. He also has plenty of humility, and and people sometimes mistake that for uh, something else, goofiness or something. They say, how come this guy isn't saying, I'm the greatest? You know, he's talking around the issue. Why doesn't he just come out and say, I'm the greatest? Well, you'll never hear that from Gary Johnson. He's very—would I would, would you say he, uh, that he's a bit quirky? Is that a fair— I way think to describe I think him? he's quirky. I think I'm a bit quirky. They're, they're different quirks. Uh, but I think <laughs> the overwhelming thing about Gary is his humility. Uh, he reminds me in many ways of uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, who, uh, you know, what, I asked Gary, how do you climb these mountains? He said, I put one foot in front of the other. That's how I do all my athletic stuff. And Lincoln, you may remember, was asked, how, how long should a man's legs be? Because Lincoln was very tall. And they wanted him to say, long, like mine. And he said, long enough to reach the ground. So they both have kind of homespun wisdom. And uh, I, I refer to Gary as Honest Gary on, on the campaign trail. It's the one undertaking we made to each other when uh, Leslie and I flew out and shook with him on the uh, deal uh, after he and I talked on the telephone is we're going to tell the truth to each other and, and to the public throughout this campaign. And, and Gary is obsessed with telling the truth, which is why sometimes he seems painfully honest. And yet when I mention Gary Johnson to people I know who aren't following the day-to-day -day of politics, the first word inevitably that comes up is some variant of pothead. How do you respond to that? Is, do you think that's just sort of a, a bias we have toward alcohol against marijuana? Or do you think there's a sense that, you know, he's been on drugs for too long? Oh, no. He's got, he's got a mind like a steel trap, honestly. I've been in a lot of uh, plotting and scheming conversations with him, <laughs> and this guy has a rat trap mind. It's just that, you know, I said I was out there by myself for the decade of the 90s on gay and lesbian issues. Gary was out there by himself on legalizing marijuana for a decade as well. It was a decade after that. Uh, and so he came to be identified with that. And while there are 100 million Americans who have uh, smoked marijuana, there are a lot who haven't. And to them, it's just so alien, even if they're knocking back a couple of stiff ones <laughs> every evening. So it's, I think, fear of the unknown. But if you look at, and, and I say Gary has influenced me on some issues, this is one of them. If you look at the statistics, uh, you know, you have uh, legal prescription uh, pills uh, killing 30,000 people a year and marijuana killing, I don't know how many people, zero uh, a year. That's a factor. That's worth taking into account. And Can I ask you, uh, Governor, why you think we're in the state we're in when it comes to this campaign? Why do you think Donald Trump has caught fire and why is he enjoying really such a, uh, you know, such support across the country. And I, I suggest, by the way, I would recommend you not use the phrase basket of deplorables, just FYI. 
Good tip. So I don't, I don't know why he's gotten as far as he has. I aim to find out between now and November 8th, uh, because we're going to have, even if not in the debates, and we could still get in the second and third debates, we're going to have a seat at the table and uh, a platform to uh, voice analyses. And, uh, you know, I've been— But certainly a- you must have some idea, Governor. I mean, you're, you're an astute observer of, of politics for many decades now. Well, I do Why, have an what idea. Is he, what is he appealing to? Yeah. No, what he's doing uh, with almost every breath uh, is to try to set group against group and set people's teeth on edge against each other and stir up negative emotions, uh, beginning with envy, then going on to resentment, and ultimately uh, hatred. Uh, not too, not too strong a word with his uh, treatment of uh, uh, Muslim. Uh, so, and he's had some success there by appealing to the very worst angels of our nature, uh, and it's a sad thing. So, I think the more sunlight that can be shined on that, the better. And, and I'm going to be there, trying to do that in in the next uh, next seven weeks. But it's the most uh, negative and unappealing. Uh, run of statements and initiatives and feints and dodges and lies and prevarications uh, that I've seen in my lifetime. And uh, as you said, I've been around politics for a while. It doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to stick. I mean, the sort of the Teflon candidate is is such an overused phrase. But I mean, he is beyond Teflon, it seems to me. Well, let's hope that when people are window shopping that uh, they're willing to put up with uh, a lot for some entertainment value, but then at the end of the day when they have to actually walk in the booth and cast a vote that they'll be uh, focused more on the merits. But it's striking. You've described all the reasons that he's hateful and terrible and his policies are going to potentially start a new depression. And you even compared his immigration plan to Kristallnacht, which for people who or don't worse. know. Or worse. And yet... He's tied with the Democratic nominee. So where is this yeah, coming no, from? No, I mean, go figure. He, he retweeted pictures of George Lincoln Rockwell. Uh, you're too young to remember. Uh, I'm not. Of the Ameri- <laughs> he was the founder of the American Nazi Party. So Mr. Trump gets called on this. Why are you retweeting, uh, retweeting uh, George Lincoln Rockwell? Ah, it's nothing. Uh, it was an accident. It was a joke. Don't worry about it. Baloney. It's a dog whistle. And, uh, you know, the white supremacists will say, yeah, we know Donald is with us. And, you know, we don't care that he took it back and said he wasn't serious about uh, tweeting uh, the, the picture of the founder. So it's just uh, uh, it's a uh, terrible campaign on, on so many levels uh, that uh, it sets new standards, low standards for uh, American politics. And speaking of low standards, I think Trump's only response to you personally was when you made the crystal knocked comment. His campaign put out a statement in which he said, and I'm quoting here, I don't talk about his alcoholism. So why would he talk about my foolishly perceived fascism? Yeah. Well, um, if that, uh, if he wants to plead guilty to fascism, uh, I'll plead guilty to drinking wine. <laughs> <laughs> Conversely, Governor, why do you think Hillary Clinton is having so much trouble? That that young woman you met in your twenties and called a really great kid. I, I don't understand it, and I say so to everyone uh, who will listen. I I don't get it, but obviously it's there. At one point, Trump was at seventy percent unfavorable, and she was at sixty-eight or something like that. I don't understand it, uh, and uh, it may be that uh, you know the negativity of the Republican uh, primary season has slopped over into the general election, and everyone thinks they're supposed to be all 
upset about everything all the time. But, but uh, you know, the negative tone of, of the two establishment parties, uh, I think uh, we're, we're, we may make an issue out of that, saying, look, we're, we're not being negative. Here's what we think. We are an alternative. And uh, we hope that that may have an effect. How much do you think uh, the criticism of Hillary Clinton is uh, imbued by sexism? Oh, I'm I'm always prepared to look for misogyny behind every tree. Uh, I, I think uh, women have had uh, a hard time getting uh, fair treatment. Do you think she has a problem with honesty and trustworthiness? Those have become the kind of buzzwords for people who oppose Clinton. Yeah, I may get crosswise with Gary here, but no, I, I don't think that. I mean, I, I think uh, it's not a stretch to say there is some pay-to-play aspects to the uh, relationship between uh, the foundations and, and the government. And uh, I wish that the uh, Huma Abedin emails had come from her as well as from Huma. Uh, but in the scheme of things, that, that doesn't match the level of shouting that's going on by everybody else. So what's the path to victory, Governor Weld? The path to victory for me and Johnson is to solve our quantitative uh, problem or issue, and that's that only 35% of the people know who we are. I don't think we have a qualitative pro- uh, problem because I think we've got the best the best ticket, the most experience, and uh, the best platform, which is to do what's necessary uh, on the budget and also to uh, be the opposite of what, what Mr. Trump is on social issues. So if we put our story in front of people, I don't have too much doubt as to the outcome. Uh, You're right, Katie. Uh, Time is uh, flying, and we've got uh, seven weeks to do that in. Uh, What gives me some some ground for optimism here is it's in the last four weeks of the election that people really do focus with laser-like intensity on the issues and on the options. And it's going to be hard for them to ignore us uh, altogether if we get even a modicum of uh, earned media exposure in those seven weeks. But if you don't get into any of the debates, do you think that there's any chance that you could win? It's a very long putt. Uh, But then I saw Justin Leonard's 57-foot putt uh, at the Brookline Country Club live to win the Davis Davis Cup for the United States. That's a long putt that went in. (laughs) Nice to have the common touch at the Brookline Country Club, isn't it, Governor? That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Before we go, I just have to ask you, what newspapers and magazines have you read that have helped establish your worldview? I read uh, the New York Times. I hope you got that joke, Governor, by the way. It It seems to have fallen flat. No, no, I got it. He smiled. I'm in the room with him. He smiled. My reading habits have uh, maybe shifted uh, to making sure that I absorb the Times and and the Journal. I read uh, foreign affairs. I read a lot in uh, international uh, affairs. And you're a writer. I ha- I can't let you go before mentioning that you've written three books. Yeah, and also, and you don't know this, Katie, but I have a memoir in the can that's 475 pages long, and that's without the fatal phone call from Gary Johnson in May of 2016. So it's going to have to elongate a little bit, and then it will really be too long to read. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, Governor. How many pages? <laughs> 475 and counting. Oh, God. Well, well, yes, you're definitely going to have to uh, do an epilogue for that. It should be a, a fascinating month for you. I hope you drink coffee because you're going to need plenty of it. 
That's entirely true. I'm a three and a half cup a day man already. <laughs> All right. Well, up that to five. Governor Bill Well, thanks so much for spending some time with us talking about this Stranger Than Fiction campaign and good luck on the trail. Thanks so much, Katie. Brian, thanks. Thanks. We want to thank Gianna Palmer, Greta Cohn, and the Reverend John Delore for producing the show. Zach Dinerstein mixed this episode. Special thanks, as always, to Mark Phillips for our fantastic theme music. And most of all, thank you for listening. If you want to leave us a message, please do so at 929-224-4637. And please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It really does help other listeners to find the show. It helps Apple with their search algorithm to list our show more prominently for people to see. So please subscribe, rate, and review. So we'll talk to you next time. Hey, folks, it's me, Mark Marin. And if you love podcasts, you don't want to miss. Now hear this. A really big podcasting festival coming in October to the Los Angeles area. Come see me and lots of shows you love. More than 30 great podcasts live on six stages. It'll be a weekend full of laughs, storytelling, and your favorite hosts up close. You've got Earwolf favorites like Comedy Bang Bang and with special guest Lauren Lapkus. Plus more great shows like Brilliant Idiots, Criminal, and The Moth. And I'm doing a special WTF as well. Do a VIP pass for meet and greets with your favorite hosts. Sit up close and reserve seating. Hang out in the VIP lounge and get more special perks as well. It all happens at Now Hear This, October 28th through the 30th in Anaheim, California, right near Los Angeles. Don't miss it. Go to NowHearThisFest.com to buy your tickets. Okay? Good. Great. 